Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Todorovic. I am joined by the wide-jawed, laryngeal prominent and hairy-chested Dr. Matthew Barton. Good morning, Michael. (laughs) Did you like that? I did. I I understood the reference, but many others might not. Testosterone, everybody. That's going to be the topic of today's podcast. I found this a difficult topic to work through. What about you? The resources I use were ambiguous not clear and when you do a lot of um searching things come up like how to boost testosterone naturally um five tips on using testosterone how to get big biceps and can i just say that when i put on when i put on my instagram page what questions do you have about testosterone they were the biggest questions that i got as well how can i naturally boost it the thought is well I want testosterone because I know that testosterone builds muscle. Therefore, I want more of it, more testosterone, more muscle. Increase testosterone naturally. Was that one you came across? That was your website, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's that's my blog page. So, going through testosterone, we're going to have a look at a couple of things. We're going to talk about um, what it is, what it is, what it does, uh, its role in uh, embryogenesis. 
uh, its role in development, its role. Sorry, did you say embryogenesis or embryology? Embryology, yeah. Why? Wow, I know. Never thought that would come out of your mouth. Well, you chose the topic, and I think it's because you wanted to yeah. specifically focus on embryology. We're going to talk about the role of testosterone in building muscle, but also as a supplement, testosterone replacement therapy, when it's used, why it's used, and if there's any side effects to utilizing testosterone as uh, an exogenous agent, so outside the body. Um, Matt, before you started your study on this... Well, I thought you were going to say before you started your replacement therapy. <laughs> yes, well, before you did start... Um, uh, your jaw wasn't as wide set. Your Adam's apple was not as prominent. But now um, I feel like I'm talking to Matthew Barton, the man. <laughs> whatever, whatever that means. What did you know about testosterone before you started your research? Uh, I knew it was a male sex hormone. I knew it played a role in masculinizing the body. I knew it had a role in. So when you say, sorry, I'm interrupt. When you say masculinizing, what do you mean by that? That's a good question. Um, I guess muscle growth, bone density, um, certain characteristics that's more uh, body body characteristics that may be a bit more masculine-like. Like the prominence of your larynx, like your Adam's yeah, apple, yeah, right? Yeah, so, so the voice would go with that. Wideness of the jaw, hair. That Play- was uh, that was only through um, you know growth hormone. No, no. The, the, How many uh, things are you taking? The, <laughs> the jaw. I, I had never really looked at that from a scientific standpoint, but, you know, just growing up um, playing sports and so forth, you always heard, um, uh, you know, from talking to people that... Look at that take, bloke's jaw. He's yeah, on the, yeah, yeah. the TRT. That's right. <laughs> the big T. Yeah. <laughs> Which was my nickname but in I, high school. But I never really knew whether that was a true thing or not. Yeah. Yeah, well... I think that's more so probably growth hormone um, and, and its role on uh, bone development post-closure, right? Possibly, anyway, yeah. Well, um, what else did you know? So, masculinization. Um, and it wasn't until I started to study embryology, was, which was during my PhD, part of teaching anatomy, that you then learn testosterone plays an important role in utero particularly for sex determination, which we can talk about. Um, but outside that, not a great deal, to be honest. Yeah, I, I would say that I was the same. Uh, I knew that testosterone built muscle. I knew that it was uh, responsible, at least in part, for the secondary male sexual characteristics, uh, like like you outlined just before. But didn't know much else on top of that. Maybe aggression? Yeah, always used to think that people who would take testosterone as an anabolic steroid, so bodybuilders, powerlifters, things like that, you know, gym junkies, that they would be prone to aggression. Mm. You know, they get big, strong, and aggressive. Uh, and we might be able to discuss that a little bit in today's podcast. I was really interested. So I knew that testosterone was a steroid hormone, which means it's synthesized from cholesterol. But I was really interested to, to find out that cholesterol as a starting product, as a precursor for steroid hormones, actually produces a whole bunch of hormones which are all fed into the same metabolic pathways. So, for example, if you start off with... So, col- the steroids. The steroid hormone. So, you can start... When you hear steroids, though, you always think of anabolic steroids, don't you? You do. Yeah, you don't yeah. think of 
the other ones we're about to mention. That's actually a good point because even students do that as well. So you say steroids, they think growth hormones, they think things that are pro-growth. Um, the thing about a steroid is that it's just fat soluble. It's yep. made from cholesterol. It jumps through a plasma membrane and has its effect on the DNA. That, yeah. you know, that's probably the only thing that is consistent amongst steroids, not their activity or mechanism of action. You know, there's, there's steroids out there that don't promote growth. And yeah. you know, like aldosterone and cortisol and things like that, they don't necessarily promote protein synthesis. But it could, you could be fair by saying a steroid because it is fat soluble and like you said, it can go straight through the cell. It doesn't have to act on a receptor on the cell membrane. It can therefore go straight into the nucleus of the cell and impact the way that the genes are expressed. That would be fairly safe to say, would you think? Yeah, I would say that that is the only thing that is consistent amongst steroids. Yeah. yeah. So when we look at the steroids, different types of steroids that are made, um, do you think it's useful that we can just put them quickly in a category and then we'll focus on testosterone? Yeah, okay, good idea. All right, so do you want me to start? Sure. So if we begin with cholesterol... So that's uh, a starting point. That's the starting point. Uh, what you'll find is that going a cholesterol molecule can go down a pathway where it can turn from cholesterol into something called pregnenolone. Now, interestingly, from pregnenolone, you can go down a pathway that produces progesterone, which we know is really important in preparing the uterus for implantation, for example. Uh, it can continue to go down this progesterone pathway to produce aldosterone, which we know is important for reabsorbing sodium. And water. And water. And, so and plays, excreting potassium. Yes, yeah, so it plays a really important role in, in fluid balance within yep. the body and blood pressure. The progesterone can go down another pathway that produces cortisol, which is a stress hormone. It, it's a, a glucocorticoid, which yep. means it releases glucose for energy yep. from stored forms. Uh, it can go down another pathway, which we call the androgen pathway which will ultimately produce androgens which are going to be the focus of today like DHEA which is dehydroepiandosterone testosterone and dihydrotestosterone known as DHT they're the three important androgens we'll probably focus today DHEA testosterone and DHT and then testosterone once that's made can actually turn into estrogen or estrogen like or estrogen-like, like, like um, uh, estradiol or estriol. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is all from the cholesterol turning into pregnenolone. Yeah. And what's interesting is, obviously, to go from one to the other, you need enzymes, which you're going to talk about in a second. But these enzymes usually are found either in the mitochondria or mm. in the smooth endoplasmic reticulum. Right. Right. So that's a, that's an important point. And to go from cholesterol to pregnenolone actually happens at the mitochondria. So that's important. So they're mitochondrial enzymes. Now, you're going to talk about in a sec, if you have problems with certain enzymes, how it's going to divert the path. Just like if there's a crash on a highway, the cars are all diverted to go down another pathway. And so if at some point you're able to just type in uh, steroidogenesis into Google and have a, have a little picture up on your screen while we're discussing this, it might help. It should be fine without it, but it might help because it'll highlight that if you've got a problem with an enzyme, the pathway is diverging and you're going to produce more of one thing, less of another. Is that f safe to say? Yes, I think so. And so with what you just said, so all the steroids in the body that you're going to make, and like you said, some are good examples. Aldosterone is a good one. Cortisol is a good one. The androgen is a good one. Testosterone is a good one. Estrogen is a good one. And you might even chuck vitamin D in there 
just to complete the mix of steroid hormones, right? Yes. Now, depending on the tissue in the body that wants to make it, this pathway that we're going to discuss can stop early. So like you said, you can go from cholesterol to progesterone. Yeah. Um, so in other parts of the body, you might go from this progesterone and keep going, like when you're in the adrenal gland, keep going to make aldosterone or keep going to make cortisol. But if you're in, the say, the ovary, it might just stop there and you don't go any further because you just want to produce progesterone. Yeah and, yeah. that's and that's important just to make a um, a hormone that helps to maintain gestation. That's why it's pro progesterone. Yeah. Pro gestation. It's a good point. So different tissues are going to push this process of steroidogenesis down different pathways. Yeah. And the only reason why that's the case is simply because the expression of the enzymes will be higher or lower. That's all yeah, it's going to really right. be. So all the products are there to be able to produce everything. So it doesn't matter what tissue you're in. If you've got cholesterol and, and then pregnenolone, you can create cortisol, aldosterone, testosterone, estrogen, for example, progesterone. You can create all these things, but there's going to be more abundant enzymes to go down one path compared to another. And that's what we call tissue-specific um, expression. So, and like you said, so if, if you're in the adrenal gland, you're going to be more likely to go down the cortisol aldosterone pathway. Or, or the androgens as well. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Well, so it depends if you're in the cortex or medulla, I suppose, right? Well, the medulla is going to be more important for uh, epinephrine or um, noradrenaline. Okay. Whereas the cortex, and so when you look at the cortex, um, it's got kind of three layers to it. And it's, it's interesting because, did you, do you want to just say what those layers are? The zonas. Uh, well, I, I, I can't remember, Matt. I pulled that out of the top of my head. I haven't... Fasciculata, reticulata, and what's the other one? Tiramisulata. <laughs> so basically, they're just different groups of cells as you go from the cortex towards the middle. Okay, yeah, and, yeah. The, and the reason why I'm saying this is because as um, you're going down this pathway of producing from a, a cholesterol, as you go through, you might actually find the outer, I think it's fasciculata, will only produce aldosterone, okay? And then it releases it out to go and um, help with um, fluid retention, right? But as it, this blood that's filtering through the adrenal gland, as it's going into the deeper levels, it then has the ability of these enzymes to then make other ones like the cortisols and the androgens. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So if we want to do the pathway very briefly, just so we can show how they're made... Um, we're not going to go through all the enzymes because it's just too many big big terms. Yeah, and Matt I, will find it too difficult to pronounce. That's right. <laughs> pronounce. So I don't think we'll even try that. But I think we'll just get the concept out. Is that okay? Sure. So when we look at um, how we start the production of these steroid hormones, like you said, it starts with cholesterol. Okay, That cholesterol has to get into the, the cell that's going to make it. Okay, And they get the cholesterol either from the plasma membrane of that cell or the, sometimes the cytoplasm has a pool of cholesterol. And then somehow the, that cholesterol molecule has to, and this, mind you, the cholesterol has 27 carbons with it. So it's a big molecule with 27 numbered carbons. All right? Big molecule. So the, the cholesterol has to get into the mitochondria. The mitochondria is usually there for making energy. Just as a side point, there's an important um, protein that transports it in, and it's 
Its acronym is STARS, which I think is steroid uh, acute um, regulatory protein or something like that, which is important because it is activated by or promoted by another hormone that we call ACTH. And that comes from your pituitary gland, right? That's right, anterior. So the more... Adrenocorticotropic hormone. There we go. So the more of that you have, the more efficient you are at transporting cholesterol into the mitochondria in these cells. Yeah. Okay? Which becomes important for pathology. So is this only transporting cholesterol into the cells of the adrenal gland? Well, any cell that could make steroid hormones, this would be working, but at the moment I'm just focusing in the adrenal cortex. Okay. So from cholesterol, there's also another hormone, sorry, another enzyme here called desmolase, okay, which is an important cleaver. It kind of cuts off six carbons off. So now it becomes a 21 carbon molecule, which is preglanone, which is what you said. Okay. That's, and that enzyme that does that is also strongly activated by the ACTH as well. Okay. Uh, and then from that point, we go down a path usually into progesterone. And then depending on where you want to go, you have the options to either go down to make aldosterone, cortisol, or the androgens. And these just have a whole lot of different associated enzymes associated with it. Is that enough, do you think? Yep. And so your adrenal gland, at least the cortex, has the potential to pump out aldosterone, which is important for regulating water and salt, cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and the androgens, which is the DHEA. We won't have to repeat the whole name. And... So you might say, well, why do you need androgens, particularly if you're a female? So why would a female want to have these androgens coming out of the adrenal cortex? Well, my understanding, the the main functions of these androgens, we'll just stick with DHEA. Can you just pronounce the whole name again? Dehydroepiandosterone. Okay. Um, It seems that these hormones in minute amounts will um, produce the growth of hair for females in certain regions, pubic hair and axillary hair under the armpit, and increase libido to some extent. Okay, But they are masculinizing um, hormones, the androgens, but they're so minute in number in comparison to testosterone, they're not going to have a huge masculinizing effect to the female body. Okay, Whereas in the male body, testosterone is so much more profound. Okay? Is there anything else you think is important at this point? Nope. Okay, so did you want me to quickly just say what happens if there's a dysfunction just with the adrenal cortex to cause disease? Uh, no, because I think we're... I mean, the focus is going to be testosterone, right? Okay. So do you think... Well, I'll just say what... Um, with the androgens, because the androgens still have a masculinizing effect like testosterone for, for the... The androgens... The androgens, yeah. The androgens are testosterone, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. But the androgens from the adrenal cortex that I just mentioned, like the DHEA, if they're in excessive amounts, they can have a negative effect on the, the masculinizing effect of the, the body. Okay. Okay, so there is the most common um, adrenal cortex dysfunction is from an enzyme called 21-hydroxylase. And all I'll say is that is a step from progesterone going down the path to produce aldosterone, okay, but also to produce cortisol. Now, this is dysfunctional, let's say congenitally, so it's switched off, it doesn't work, okay, which means 
for that baby, for instance, it's not going to produce cortisol or aldosterone. Now, what the body will do is it sends in, well, there's no cortisol in the body, so that cortisol doesn't go back up to the brain to negatively feedback and tell the ACTH to turn off. So it actually turns it on. So what did we say at the start uh, ACTH is important for? Uh, it's important for the production of androgens. Correct. So what would happen is the ACTH just switches on dramatically. But because you've got that broken enzyme, you can't, even though you're processing way more cholesterol, you're not making that cholesterol into aldosterone or cortisol anymore. It's diverted down the wrong path. It goes down the androgen line. So yeah. what happens, Detour. That's right. So what happens is now that baby is exposed to high amounts of androgens. So there's going to be a change in the masculinization of the body. But also because you're not, you haven't got aldosterone, you're not going to um, reabsorb salt or water. So you're going to have hypotension and you've got a cortisol issue. So you're going to have hypoglycemia. And so this by far is the most common adrenal cortex. What's the phenotype? Of the yeah, how do they present? What do they look like? I are think they, are, so. For example, phenotypically, are they female? Oh, oh sorry. Okay. Phenotypically, are they are they male? Because oh, they no, push down an androgenic pathway. I think the only difference is in the female phenotype that they're, they're more masculinized, so they might have more facial hair, and but uh, they may they may present with issues later on when they hit puberty. But otherwise, I don't think there's a dramatic effect outside that, particularly if it's a male phenotype. So the biggest effect isn't the uh, increase in androgens, but probably the decrease in the corticoids, the mineralocorticoids and the glucocorticoids, yeah. cortisol and aldosterone. That's what I, I'm led to believe, yeah. Okay, interesting. And so that's the, that, that's the effect of producing from cholesterol to those three different steroids. But now we're going to focus predominantly on testosterone. Yeah, and 20 now, minutes into the podcast, we're going to start talking about the topic, which is testosterone. <laughs> I think it's important, though. I, I, because, I find it interesting, this pathway. Well, the, the, the reason why I'm saying this is because in the testes, which is really the only part, or at least 95 in the male, 95% of testosterone made in the male is coming from the testes only. Hence its name? Yep. Um, what came first, testosterone or testes? It would have been uh, well, testes, obviously. Testosterone is named after testes. So yeah. testy or testo is from testicle. Yeah. Um, sterone, I think, has a combination of sterile and ketone. Yeah. That's the chemical structure yeah. of it. To highlight, it's a steroid. Yeah. So the steroid produced by the testes is testosterone. Gra- you know, greater than 95% of all the testosterone is produced, like Matt said, by the testes. Um, now, why? Why are the testes responsible for producing this testosterone? Um, you mean how do they do it? Or No, firstly, why? And then we can talk about how. Just generally, why? Why do we need testosterone produced by the testes? Oh, okay. So there's there's different points along the the maturation of the, let's say the um, masculinizing male. <laughs> so there's going to be an important for testosterone in uh, in in utero development, and then there's going to be pretty much zero testosterone. Um, Shortly after birth to puberty. Yeah, that's right. So it's just flat lines. So yep. there's zero, pretty much zero testosterone up to the point of 10, 12 years of age. And then it starts to spike. And then it will, I mean, you get your biggest spike going into puberty. And then you kind of um, level out into adulthood. And then as you hit about 40, I think you drop about 1% each year. So you, you were saying that in utero, 
the testosterone production of the testes, it's most important for the masculinizing effects of the developing. Well, sexual determination. So sexual determination, but then, well, okay, sexual determination, and we'll get to the details of that in a sec. Then not much until so from birth, not much until puberty. Then puberty it spikes up, and two important roles in masculinization and sperm production, right? So you yep. would say that these are the two main reasons why testosterone is produced by the testes is because the testes also produce sperm in a process known as yep. spermatogenesis. So it localized at the seminiferous tubes of the testes, we're producing sperm because of the testosterone release. Yeah, yeah. But then also that testosterone that's going to be released through the systemic circulation can be changed into DHT, for example, dihydrotestosterone, but even the estrogens as well, if need if need be, to start um, altering the, f- the, f- the phenotype, the way that the body looks, right? Was, yeah. Is that safe to say? Yep. Okay, so let's then go, let's go back in utero and let's talk about, obviously start at whatever week you like when it comes to <laughs> sex determination. Okay. And you, you tell me, because I don't know, any of this. So I want you to tell me, I want you to try and blow my mind, throw some interesting facts my way. Okay. We'll see how you go. All right. So bad uh, start. Boring. All right. What else? <laughs> All right. At, at about four weeks um, post gestation, post fertilization. Yeah. Yeah. Fertilization. Um, the, uh, the gender, if you want, if you want to say from a point of view of, determining which sex it's going to go and it hasn't been determined really yet. I mean mm. it ha- it has been genetically so the genetic sex will be determined by the father so the sperm is either going to be a, an X chromosome for the sex chromosome or the Y okay so this the, the genetic sex has already been determined from fertilization but up to the fourth week it's still um, non-determinate now in the back wa- phenotypically phenotypically yeah at the back wall um, of the abdomen, so near the near the um, vertebral column, there's a pillow of tissue. So it's like a nice soft pillow, okay, which is called the gonadal ridge. Okay? And where's that in the abdomen? In the abdomen, high abdomen. So that would be kind of just sitting where your kidneys would sit now, let's say. All right. Okay. So at four a weeks, pillow of tissue. Pillow of tissue, right? T- tissue. Now, what is important? That one of the first steps is if there is a Y chromosome, and if it this gene turns on. There is a number of genes, but I'll just give you the most important one that we're aware of at the moment. So genetic males XY, genetic female XX. XX. All right, yep. go on. So if there is a Y chromosome, there is a gene that turns on at about the fourth week, possibly a bit earlier, which is the sex-determining region of the Y chromosome. Okay, it will send signals to that pillow of tissue that will differentiate a type of cell called a Sertoli cell. Yep. Okay. Now, this Sertoli cell will straight away produce a hormone which is important, which I'll explain in a second, called MIF or malarian inhibiting factor. Sometimes um, hormone as well, say MIH or MIF. Okay. Now, at, at about the same time as this Sertoli cell differentiation is occurring in that pillow of tissues, you have your germal cells migrating into the pillow. Okay. So, so these, these are, will ultimately turn into the gonads. Correct. Right. So these are germal cells that will either produce um, oocytes or spermatocytes. So sperm-like cells or ovum. Over. Right. But as they're embedded into the pillow, because the Sertoli cells have been d- differentiated by that SRY gene, okay, the germal cells will then differentiate into a spermatogonia. Okay. okay. Does it make sense? 
Okay, so this is my recap from my brain. Okay. Right, so you correct me. Yep. Um, if it's a if if, if this uh, embryo is XY chromosomally, the Y chromosome will have an SRY gene, which will produce Sertoli cells. Just in, set, it will send a factor that will um, differentiate some of those pillow cells into, into Sertoli cells. Yeah. These Sertoli cells will then have an effect which promotes the production of the gonads, which at the moment are undetermined to, uh, yeah. undetermined to be um, uh, basically uh, to produce ova or to produce sperm. doesn't know what it's going to do yet, but now the Sertoli cells sends a signal and says, you're going to be producing sperm ultimately. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so at a similar time, again, we're probably looking at around the sixth week, what's going to happen from the mother is that she's going to start producing something from her de- developing placenta. I guess you can argue who's who owns the placenta, the fetus or the mother. What do you think? A uh, bit of both. Probably coming more from the developing um, fertilised egg, really. Do you know the placenta is produced primarily from a rogue virus that was incorporated into the mother's genome millions of years ago? Really? Yeah. So it's what allowed us to move from egg into in utero placental animals. Placental, right, yeah. Right, yeah. So, so um, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, a virus. Because what they did was they they were having they were doing genetic sequencing, and they go, this looks like the like a lot of the genetic material for the for the placenta uh, is transcribing and activating a gene that looks a lot like HIV, a retrovirus. And they had a look and they said, oh wow, this is an old old virus that's incorporated itself. And its activation of a number of genes that is associated with it results in the placenta. Wow. Cool, isn't it? Because previous to that, like the, I mean, I'm not saying it happens li- from a linear point of view in this way, but a, a link in kind of between the, the mammals who have a placenta and the egg laying animals being. Monotremes? Yeah, it would be the monotremes, which is an, an egg laying animal, uh, animal. Mammal. Is Isn't it a mammal? An egg oh, yeah, yeah, mammal. it would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're very immature when they're hatched and then they have to go up to get the milk and sit in the pouch. Yeah, that's right. So it would be that link between those two, I, I'd imagine. Um, now, oh, yeah, so You're what's, sorry about what's that. the hormone that's coming from the placenta? It's also the hormone that will make a female morning sick and also um, register on the pregnancy test. HCG? Yeah, so HCG. Human chorionic gonadotropin? Brilliant. Ah, yes. So that will then also go to that pillow of cells, but there's another group of pillows of cells in that pillow, which are like mesodermal cells, which are connective tissue-like cells, kind of like fibroblasts. This HCG will differentiate those into Leydig cells. Okay, wait a minute. I would assume that regardless of the XY or XX chromosome, the placenta is going to release HCG to those pillow cells. Yep. Leydig cells, as far as I'm aware, are testes specific. It's a good question. So why would is it because it must be? A, it does it because the Sertoli cells are now present. It's probably a good guesstimation. I'm okay. not sure, but that's a good one. Thanks, mate. So, so now the Leydig cells are differentiated. So you don't know everything about embryology. Definitely not. Um, and and probably a lot, lot of this is still unknown. Okay, that's yeah. your way of getting out of it. <laughs> So this is about the ninth week now. So the Leydig cells are now become active and they are going to start to produce testosterone. So two cell types now, Leydig and Sertoli, yep. which will become important shortly. Correct. Well, they're important now, but yep. they'll be even more important shortly. So I'll explain now what these two important 
hormonal releases are for now. So the, you have the malarian inhibitor factor, which from is Sertoli. Yep, and you have the testosterone. From Ladig. Yep. Right. So outside the pillow, which is the developing gonad, okay, there's two ductal system that goes. I've down. never had my gonads be referred to as developing pillows. Well, you. <laughs> I don't. I'm not comfortable with that, Matt. Okay, I can either stick with pillow or gonad. Let's say gonads now. Oh, go gonad, gonads now. Go go <laughs> go gonads. Go gonads. Okay, so on either side of the gonads, because there's going to be two on either side of the vertebral column. What? There's these two ductal systems that are running down parallel to each other, right next to the gonad, all the way down to where your, at this point, this is your favourite bit of anatomy, the cloaca, but this is going down to, you know, where your urethra will be now. Okay. One pipe. Are they my, is it my ureters? I'm going to get to that. Oh, sorry. Okay. One is going to be the malarian duct. One is the wolfian duct. Okay. All right. I've, I, I vaguely remember this from a previous discussion. Now, the malarian, because you're secreting from the Sertoli cell inhibiting factor, that duct would just cancel out. It will just disappear. Apoptose. Okay. And degrade. And degrade. The malarian degrades. Correct. Right. So we're left with the Wolfian. Correct. All right. So the malarian duct would essentially, if you didn't have that factor, it would have produced a uterus, fallopian tube, cervix, upper vagina. And what was the factor? Malarian inhibiting factor. Coming from Sertoli. Correct. Okay, cool. Okay. Whereas the testosterone will go to the Wolfian duct and make it more hyperplastic. So make it ah, more... So okay. one promotes one, the other yeah. inhibits the other. Correct. So you get this like synergistic effect. Right. Okay. So, and so that... Can I just quickly say, in, in females, obviously no Ladig, no testosterone... Is is estrogen a selector in the opposite way? No, nothing. Because you don't have this. Yeah. Okay, so you don't have the MIF and you don't have the testosterone. So the, your Wolfian ducts will just degenerate because there's no testosterone to hold them there. Gotcha. So they're gone and you've got no MIF to degenerate the malarian duct. So, so basically default. By default, yeah. So Wolfian by default. Oh, sorry, malarian oh. by default. Wolfian by... Um, it needs testosterone. It needs testosterone, so mm-hmm. it needs to be activated. So if if there's a if there are defects in these pathways, default is so female is the genetic def, is the um, phenotypic default. Yeah, and that's why when I said at the start with those enzym, enzymatic dysfunctions, yeah, you're not going to have a problem with the, the sex of the female because that will just develop by default. Whereas the male, there's potential problems from those enzymes not being present or working. Okay, cool, cool. Okay. okay. So what's going to happen now is the Wolfian duct will develop into the vas deferens, the all the, like the seminal vesicle and the epididymis. Okay. And then what the testosterone is going to do at this point from nine weeks onwards is also really upregulate some enzymes that's important for producing more testosterone. Okay. Um and then you're also going to go down the path of producing more DHT, which seems to have a more profound effect in this case in utero on the external genitalia. So, so as it's developing DHT, which is made from testosterone yeah. through an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase, yep. produces the external genitalia or just the genitalia. In particularly, the, the, particularly the penis and prostate. Yep. But it also plays an important role for the testes to descend. So, so is there an issue with 5-alpha reductase enzyme congenital 
Probably. I, I didn't look into that, but I would I would imagine so. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, is there anything else? I think that's... No, I think that's good. Okay, so this is then up until... So basically, your the take-home message here is that we've got two cell types that have been produced, Sertoli and Leydig, which are both sitting within the gonads of what's now a phenotypic male. Yeah. Right? Um, they're produ- Or at least the Leydig cells are producing testosterone, which is important. And this is now obviously further um, uh, enhancing the, the male phenotype. Yeah, and just to touch on your question that you said about is estrogen important for sexual determination at this point? Yeah, it appears not because they even found that in a normal developed female, that if there is faulty estrogen receptors or they've got a problem with an enzyme that makes estrogen from testosterone, which is aromatase. Yeah. So if that enzyme's faulty, or the estrogen receptors faulty, the female will still develop um, perceivably fine. Because it's a default phenotype. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, this is. But but if test if the, if there is problems with the testosterone receptors or the enzymes, then for the for the um, the phenotype to go down a more masculine pathway would be disrupted. All right. Look, that was that was pretty good. But it's very it's very heavy going. I think you did a very good job of explaining that. Um, uh, you should be lauded. You should be patted patted on the back. And say congratulations. Thank you. Now, the baby's born. Baby will not really be producing much testosterone until puberty. Well, so the baby, uh, so the in utero, the the numbers that I've got is in the fetus. the 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 level of testosterone in the fetus um, would be about four nanograms per mil. Okay, when it's a newborn. There's still quite a lot of testosterone board, presumably still maybe coming from um, a feedback loop from the mother. But then from childhood, so shortly after, all the way up to um, the onset of puberty, there's almost no testosterone. Okay. So we hit puberty then, and you start to get a signal coming from the brain once puberty hits. Now, specifically the hypothalamus. Yeah. And the hypothalamus is going to be releasing a hormone called gonadotropin-releasing hormone. This travels through a localized blood system that goes to the pituitary gland, specifically the anterior lobe of the pituitary gland, and stimulates the release of gonadotropins. So gonad tells you it's going to, in this case, uh, because it's male, go into the testes, and tropins tells you that it's going to release more hormones. Okay. Right? So the gonadotropins are... LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, which are named after what they do in the female uh, reproductive cycle and not the male. But what we can say here, this is how I remember it, is LH stimulates Leydig cells. The L in luteinizing hormone goes to the Leydig cells. Okay. And the follicle-stimulating hormone, the S, goes to the Sertoli cells. Well, in a way, the, the Sertoli is the... Fo- follicular cells for the developing um, sperm. Okay. So just like the ovum needs its supporting cells. Yeah, true, cell, true. Which the, the term they use for a supportive cell is a sus- sustentacular cell. Yeah. Sustaining Yeah, cell. sustentacular. So yeah. the, the um, Sertoli cells, now I forgot it. <laughs> Sertoli cells is that supportive cell. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. So what then happens at puberty is the FSH stimulates the Sertoli cells to release... 
a um, hormone called androgen uh, protein called androgen binding protein, which unsurprisingly binds to androgens, i.e., testosterone. The Leydig cells stimulate lutein. Uh, the uh, the luteinizing hormone stimulates Leydig cells to produce testosterone. Testosterone binds with the androgen binding protein, and in this localized environment of the testes, very specifically, it's happening in the seminiferous tubules. So if you were to take the testes, let's just say right now, I pull off one of Matt's testes, slam it on the table, cut into it, you'd find that there's lobes within the testes. Now these lobes are filled with little tubules called seminiferous tubules. And in these tubules, you have these Leydig and Sertoli cells. Now the testosterone with the ABP actually tells some stem cells in there called spermatogonia to start producing spermatozoa. And so sperm is now being produced and this is going to be one of the primary functions of puberty is sperm production is finally happening i think i I could be wrong with this but i think also when the baby's born they they have the capacity to produce sperm well i think they've just got spermatogonia but they don't have because they've still got high amounts of testosterone i think they do or maybe they have an ability to produce semen or something for a very short period of time and then it drops off until puberty oh didn't know that yeah all right, so testosterone, important for sperm production. That's the first thing. Uh, and then now testosterone is going to be circulating through the body from the testy production of testosterone, turning into something called DHT, dihydrotestosterone. Uh, and dihydrotestosterone and testosterone together, depending on the tissue, is going to start having a multitude of, f- of effects. Mm. So this is going to include development of bone, uh, synthesis of muscle, um, and production of hair in certain areas and other masculinizing effects. So the more prominent laryngeal prominence, which is the cartilage at the, at the throat, um, so which is called the Adam's apple. So with that, there used to be a, um, what would you call it? A um, movement, not really a movement, but they used to um, take the testes of young boys um, to promote their singing voice. Castrati. Oh, yeah. In, in predominantly in Italy, uh, so a couple th- of hundred years ago. So I think th- the reason for why it came about is at that point in time, there was a thought that females couldn't sing in church. and um, no, Not that they, not as if they physically couldn't, no, they, they weren't were just weren't allowed. Yeah. So the way that they got around this was for boys, men to do so. And they knew for some reason <laughs> that... Is, yeah, th- um, that's an easier solution. Oh, can't have women sing. Let's cut off the testes of boys and we'll get them. That's a good solution. Just let women sing. What not this just an absolute crock? So what they found is for some reason, um, the, cha- the voice changed as you hit puberty. Now, like we've spoken about before. Has it got deeper? Yes. Is that the change? That's right. Became, uh, what is it, a tenor? A tenor. Oh. Opposed to a soprano. Yeah. Now the thought was, um, I'm not sure when this changed historically, but as we've said before in a previous podcast, last Castrati died in 1920s. I wasn't going to say that part. I was going to say like we thought that the testes <laughs> had some kind of connection to the vocal cords. Oh, a direct connection. Yeah, and as it dropped, like a rope. Yeah, like a rope. As it dropped, it tugged on the vocal cords and made it more taut. All right, let me just so. Does testosterone play a role in testy descension? DHT does, yeah, yeah. So um, there's three 
points of testicular dissension. Um, and one of the important players is um, the gubernaculum, which we spoke about before. Love that. That's my favourite word in anatomy. But the DHT has um, a final kind of pulling effect to get it um, out of the abdomen, so through the inguinal canal into the scrotum. Okay. Now, I think about 4% of boys born don't have that last descent. Hypocortism? No. Crypto. Cryptocortism, yeah, that's or- right. Orchidism. Orchid. Orchidism. Crypto-orchidism. Because the testes are called orchids. Because <laughs> they're sex-producing like the... Flowers? Orchid. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so they won't pop out. <laughs> and so that can actually lead to sterility yeah. because, as we've said before, um, you need a good temperature to produce sperm. And so if they stay yeah, up course, there, yeah. the cells, the germinal cells could potentially become sterile. So and there's the, there seems to be also an association with that condition and... Um, testicular cancer later on. So, testi, uh, so DHT is the most prominent testosterone-based hormone that for descent of testes. For descent of testes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so back to the vocal cords. Oh, sorry. Yes. There yes, seems yes. to be um, two parts of the vocal cord, and there's a more of a membranous part of the cord that seems to have a greater effect. Um, well, testosterone has a greater effect on it, and that. Um, gives the voice agility, apparently. And so if you remove the testes before puberty hit, that um, cord part was um, maintained, and so the voice of the boy would be maintained. More agile. But as a... And this, this kind of goes... La, 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 la. This goes... So they, they, were, they were said to have angelic voices. And it was, I think, in the 17th, 18th century. I could have this slightly wrong. Yeah. But uh, up to 4,000 boys per year in Italy would be castrated for this. They became celebrities. That's how much they were prized for their voice. Yeah. I don't know if fame is worth that. Well, Um, apparently they still had a degree of sex drive and they could still get an erection. mm. Um, Obviously, they were sterile. They couldn't reproduce. But they could still perform a sexual. So, can act. I say why that's the case? So, so testosterone is important for the production of an erection because testosterone can promote nitric oxide release from the endothelial tissue at the testes, which promotes blood flow mm. and more blood. Uh, uh, sorry, not testes at the penis. More blood flow in the penis occludes the venous drainage, and then you get the erection. Um, now, the thing is, this you can still get this nitric oxide release through visual stimulation right. and, and tactile stimulation. So testosterone, so the pulsatile release of testosterone can produce an erection. Without it, you won't get the testosterone-based erection, which often happens through that pulsatile release, which happens often early in the morning, other different stages uh, throughout the diurnal sort of release of testosterone or circadian, I should say, release. But visual and tactile stimulation can still occur. But like you said, without testosterone, no spermatogenesis. Yeah. So no sperm. So so. So you wouldn't sterile. Without, so if you were castrated, you wouldn't get a nocturnal erection. Correct. But you could get it through stimulation. Yes, that's right. Okay. So going back to the castrates, um, what how they developed uh, physically because they had no testosterone is that they put on more fat in the abdomen region <laughs> and hips. Yeah. Okay, yeah. which is more the distribution of fat f- for female-like mm. bodies. 
Um, but they got really long limbs. So they got really long legs and really long um, arms. Why? Well, it's thought that testosterone, most testosterone that is produced will be metabolized into estrogen. Now, I could have this wrong, but... In males? Uh, in males, yeah. Okay. So uh, what I've understood here is the closure of the long bones, which is the epiphyseal plate, okay, or the growth plate, um, needs to be converted from testosterone to estrogen to close it, okay? Otherwise, it will stay open for longer. And if you keep them open for longer, they will lengthen. So less testosterone, less conversion, uh, takes longer to close. That's my understanding. It's, it's very, this is one of the parts that I found difficult yeah. because it says that estrogen is important for bone, bone growth and bone lengthening, but then it says testosterone is also very important for bone thickening and so forth. So yeah. I... Without going down a huge rabbit hole of learning everything about bone yeah, development, yeah, yeah. I that's what I found. Well, it's the same when I was doing the research, which we haven't spoken about yet, about the uh, training exercise, the role of testosterone in muscle development. Um, you know, previous research of mine has shown that testosterone, anabolic, so promotes growth, and estrogen, anabolic. But then there's studies that are also stating that estrogen is catabolic. And so, uh, you know... It, Obviously, it's tissue specific, yeah. um, and and quantity specific too. So you can have too much, and it can be detrimental to, to growth and development. You can have too little, detrimental. You so you need that happy, healthy range. So it is complex. I mean, are, are we surprised that hormones are complex? Probably not. But let's just sure. quickly talk about the the fact that because um, I don't want to brush past it. Uh, with the low testosterone, these castrati had a different. Um, deposition of fat yeah. and amount of fat deposition. So, so they had bulbous bodies, long arms. Bulbous is that the word? Or is that I, your I just description? made that part. Okay, up. Um, but they definitely were characterized by a certain shape, uh, and they were actually sometimes made fun of, like a pear shape. Yeah, maybe with, with the long limbs. Yeah, uh, and a lovely voice. Now they were somewhat prized because, um, I mean, I, potentially they could have um, relationships with females who are married, but yeah. the, the females wouldn't be concerned about Never the threat pregnant. of offspring. Yeah. yeah, of course. So that was probably part of the reason why they were so popular then. Wow. Less hair? Less facial yeah. hair? Things yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Couldn't grow beards, moustaches. Um, oh, well, I don't know how old it is. You, you got a good moustache. Um, so with the fat deposition, uh, it's important to say that testosterone boosts lipolysis, which is the breakdown of fats. Yeah. And it does this through the stimulation of catecholamines. Um, so that's like adrenaline, noradrenaline? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Uh, and also, at the same time, inhibits the storage of fats as well. So testosterone obviously plays that important role, um, which sort of... Uh, so does it mean testosterone will potentially give you a more leaner body type? Uh, look, potentially... Um, if, if somebody's on testosterone replacement therapy for hypogonadism, which is basically just the, the term used for reduced testosterone levels, which we'll talk about in a sec because there's no true value for what is uh, normal, uh, a normal level. But um, yes, re- reduced fat deposition, so fat loss, um, but also people who have metabolic syndrome, which is usually, usually classified as you know, in, insulin resistance, uh, hypertension, hypertension, or dyslipidemia. Yeah, that's right. So it seems to be that this metabolic syndrome commonly goes hand in hand with 
hypogonadism. Or just low testosterone. Which is low testosterone, which is characterized by low libido, um, erectile dysfunction. Fatigue. Fatigue, sometimes depression, depression, right? And so they sort of go hand in hand. And, you know, it was the thought that potentially obesity may be the causative factor here. But it seems to be that the hypogonadism may be something that's uh, being unrecognized. But I wonder also if... So it needs to be treated with the testosterone replacement therapy and that itself can have play an important role with the obesity, with the, f- with the, f- the fat deposition issue because it can increase lipolysis and decrease fat storage. But at the same time, testosterone helps skeletal muscle pull glucose in. So if you're insulin resistant, right? So we need insulin to tell certain receptors to come to the surface to bring glucose into that tissue, right? If you're insulin resistant, those receptors won't come to the surface and glucose is trapped in the bloodstream. You become hypoglycemic and this over time is diabetes, regardless of what type. So what they've found is that tissues that are insulin dependent, we need insulin to bring those receptors to the surface, are tissues like muscle tissue, um, and fat tissue, right? Now, GLUT4 or GLUT4 is the receptor that comes to the surface on skeletal muscle. We've found that not just insulin tells it to come to the surface, but testosterone tells it to come to the surface. Yeah. And so, th- so importantly, you don't have this glucose that's starting to elevate in the bloodstream, which can be damaging, as we know, to many tissues, as we've spoken about in previous podcasts. Testosterone promotes the breakdown of the fat, also promotes the utilization of the sugar in the muscle for energy and so tends to be quite beneficial for metabolic syndrome and hypogonadism. And so there's a lot of research. So all the research that I was reading was the past five years really saying that hypogonadism is going under-recognized in people with metabolic syndrome, males obviously, with metabolic syndrome, and that it should be thought about that the treatment in metabolic syndrome should also include TRT testosterone replacement therapy yeah which is interesting right yeah and an interesting point on that from the testosterone that's made by males the majority that's metabolized in by fat will be metabolized into estrogen yeah 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 and so the more fat that you put on the less testosterone that will be available because it's all being metabolized into estrogen yeah good point So the testosterone will continue to go down so it's it's a it's a cycle right so the more fat, the more testosterone to estrogen, which promotes more fat deposition, which continues. Yeah. It's, yeah. A bit, it's a bit like the um, insulin desensitization in pre-diabetes. So when you become less um, react- reactionary to insulin, your tissue, you have higher glucose. Your liver tries to put this glucose into other sources yeah. like fat, but like fatty acids, so you start laying down more fat, but the exposure of higher fatty acids make you more uh, insulin resistant. Yes. So you keep putting more fat on and it just goes in this cycle until you know it really hits the fan. That's right. Um, anything else you want to say before I move on to exercise and testosterone? So do you want to talk at any other function of testosterone uh, in bodily functions? Um, I was just going to now talk about protein synthesis and muscle growth, but are there any other bodily functions you, you wanted to talk about? Well, you do that, and then I'll just bring in some final points okay. um, on what it can potentially do, All which right. I found is interesting. Okay, so f- first thing is this. Um, everyone knows that testosterone can build muscle. That's true. People know that testosterone replacement therapy 
can result in muscle development and fat loss and that people who have been diagnosed with the clinical syndrome of hypogonadism, which we said is reduced libido, erectile dysfunction, bit of depression, um, things like that, um, can benefit from testosterone replacement therapy. So because it's a clinical syndrome, what that means is uh, it's not like there's one um, biomarker that can really be read to tell you it's this. So you take a bunch of symptoms like the libido issues and the erectile dysfunction and you bring it together with a bunch of other symptoms and maybe some uh, indirect measures to say you may have hypogonadism. So testosterone levels, reading testosterone levels in blood serum, for example, is one thing that they can do. Now, testosterone can be total testosterone, it can be bound testosterone, it can be free testosterone. So most testosterone is bound. So you produce testosterone in your Leydig cells and then it just pumps it out into the blood. How is it carried? Because it is a fat. That's right. Yeah, so good point. So blood is 97% water. Right, so it's going to be fifty-five percent. Well, fifty-five percent fluid, and ninety-seven percent is fifty-five percent. I made the exact same mistake in the last podcast. Um, Anyway, most of our blood is fluid, is water, Mm -hmm. which means fats don't like it, so they need to be bound to something that is water soluble Uh, to be transported. To be transported. So the two most common transporters for testosterone is albumin. Unsurprisingly, carries a whole bunch of fat uh, fat soluble steroids and other other substances and the other one is uh, what's called sex hormone binding globulin so globulins also play a role in binding most testosterone is bound to these and usually a bound form is an inactive form free testosterone which makes up the minority is actually the active form so when they do the blood test they look at total testosterone in the blood and usually what they call eugonadal which is normal Normal. testosterone levels, is anything above 12, I think it's around about 12 nanomoles per liter, right? Below 12 nanomoles per liter, usually seen as hypogonadism. So 12 to what? Yeah, just above. Wow. So this is the thing. So the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, who would be the people that you go see if you think that you're having, if you have hypogonadism? Yeah, primary care physician, if you think you have hypogonadism. Um, They've been told that there's no normal ranges for testosterone. This is the so thing. That's because we don't know. We don't well because it's so variable. I mean, yeah. so if you would do a fasting testosterone serum reading, if you were to have a meal and then do it, testosterone levels go up. So, just do you want to give you some other things that change testosterone? All right, go, yeah, okay, go for it. So this is just purely numbers. So don't read into this more than it needs to be. All right. Um, it's higher in the morning, morning than at night. All right. If you were to win a contest, contest, so like if you were to win a sporting event, even if you were a spectator and your team won, um, testosterone will be higher than if you lost. So you must have chronically low testosterone. <laughs> um, it's it's lower after you get married and have children. I won't read any more into that. And then. but if you were to have a divorce, it would go back up or okay. increase. Uh, are, are you going to uh, hypothesize why no, those I'm, two are the case? No, I'm just making some broad comments. So, so this is so so this is simply what's been published. Yes. So okay, and it, it's not um, hasn't been extrapolated why this is the case, but yeah. it's just making statements that in these cases the level of testosterone is higher or lower. Wow. Yeah, I'm not going to read into that. Um. That's interesting. Well, okay. 
if we if we look into exercise, right? There was a. Can I just make a uh, an interesting um, uh, comment? This was actually in the Human Body book. Who, who's the Bill Bryson? Bill Bryson, great at, book. Everyone should read it. At the front of his reproductive chapter, there was a, st- a statement by uh, one of the presidents of the United States, and um, apparently, I forget his name, which president it was, about the 1930s. Anyway, he was um, touring a farm, a chicken farm, and the first lady was talking to the farmer and said to the farmer, um, just looking at the rooster, how often does he have copulation? And the, the farmer said, oh, look, probably at least 20 times a day. And the first lady said, look, when the president come, comes past, can you please tell him that fact? And he's like, oh, sure. So the president came past and the farmer said, oh, by the way, your wife wanted me to tell you that a, a typical rooster will have copulation intercourse 20 times a day. And so he's, the, the president said to the farmer, uh, yes, but how many um, hens does he um, service? And, and he said, oh, over 20, and said, please tell the first lady that fact. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... 1930s was a different time. My God. <laughs> so that's in Bill Bryson's book? Yeah. It's a good book. Have yeah. you, you've a, lot read of, it? a lot of good facts. Oh, it's brilliant. He's just such a good writer. Such a good writer, especially the human body. That's our bread and butter. Mm. I enjoyed reading that book. Um, so exercise and testosterone. We're getting to it uh, an hour into the podcast. So immediately after exercise, testosterone levels go up. This is around about five minutes after exercise. Um, if you are a lifelong trainer, somebody goes to the gym, you know, four times a week, five times a week, for example, um, and you were to just generally compare your testosterone levels to somebody who doesn't train, it's about the same. So it's just that uh, acute bouts of exercise increase testosterone. Any type of exercise? Uh, not that I could find. Not that I could find. But in saying that, um, testosterone specifically targets type 1 fibers compared to type 2 fibers. So where they say, I, I remember also when I used to do a lot of resistance training. Um, used to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they used, uh, it was thrown around in the gym that, you know, if you do a lot of legs, you'll, you'll release a lot of testosterone. Did you, have you ever heard that one? Never heard that, no. but it sounds like some of the BS that gets thrown out in the gym by some bro science. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, this is what I know. What a load of crap. But, um, didn't, but didn't you say something about um, lactate and testosterone? Yeah. Yeah, okay, give me one sec. Let me, let me finish this point. So someone who trains often compared to someone who doesn't, same testosterone levels. Somebody who trains too much, now too much is subjective, right? An athlete may train too much compared to somebody who is only used to training three days a week, right? So overtraining for you will reduce testosterone levels. So testosterone only increases acutely after. And the reason potentially why is because lactate, which we know is an end... Okay, so I'm going to say something that most people probably don't know. Lactate is an end product of glycolysis, regardless of anaerobic or aerobic. Okay. So, so whether you've got air or oxygen, you don't have <laughs> oxygen. Yeah, so everyone's been taught that start with glucose, end with pyruvate, that's glycolysis, right? Then pyruvate will turn, jump into the mitochondria, Jump into the turn into acetyl CoA, jump into the Krebs cycle, produce a bunch of ATP, electron transport chain, thirty six odd ATP molecules are produced. If that's if you have oxygen, if you don't have oxygen and you need more ATP than oxygen present, then the um, pyruvate 
turns into lactic acid yeah. and lactic acid accumulates, can jump out of the blood and can turn back into acetyl-CoA, well, turn back into pyruvate and then back into acetyl-CoA, blah, 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 blah. All right. The end product of glycolysis, regardless of oxygen or not, is lactic acid. Well, I shouldn't say lactic acid, is lactate. And lactate can reversibly turn into pyruvate. So it's thought that lactate is produced, jumps into the mitochondria, turns back into pyruvate, and then turns into acetyl-CoA. That's the current uh, so metabolic you, theory. Is it thought that then if you go into lactate first, then if you have adequate amounts of oxygen, you'll then, the next step is to make it into pyru- pyruvate? Correct. Okay, but if you don't, then it Remains to- lactate. Okay. Correct. That's right. And so that's when you start, so exactly right. Seems to be that lactate, now this has only been confirmed in animal models, but lactate increases testosterone levels after exercise. So maybe the increase in testosterone immediately after exercise is the reason why testosterone boosts up. And that would assume that it was more of a anaerobic type of exercise, possibly. That, yeah, that's the assumption, but not necessarily, because okay. you can get the boost in testosterone after going for a run, for example. Now, interestingly, testosterone increases uh, muscle size, so hypertrophy. Now, hypertrophy is simply the increase in the cross-sectional area of a muscle, right? The size of it. says nothing about strength. You can intuit or correlate strength, bigger muscle, stronger muscle. That makes sense. But testosterone actually doesn't increase your strength. That's important to say. It increases hypertrophy, which in turn may increase strength. Testosterone doesn't improve recovery. That's what a lot of people also say. Doesn't improve recovery. Doesn't improve, um, sorry, doesn't improve uh, exhaustion. So if, if you get exhausted after five minutes of lifting a particular weight, you're still going to get exhausted after lifting five particular after five minutes of lifting weights with testosterone. Obviously, recovery, it does play a role because it promotes hypertrophy and hypertrophy is part of the recovery process. So let me just clarify that point. Um, what happens, the, re, the, the way testosterone seems to do it is it seems to be that lactate's produced, stimulates testosterone by the Leydig cells of the testes, testosterone's floating through the bloodstream and testosterone can increase amino acid utilization in the muscle to produce more contractile elements. This increases hypertrophy. Testosterone can tell the satellite cells of the muscle. So remember that muscle have multiple nuclei. Skeletal muscle I'm talking about, right? The muscle that's attached to bones, allows for you to move, do bench press, back squat, arm curls, things like that. They have a number of nuclei, but they're post-mitotic, so they can't make more copies of themselves. And to produce proteins, you need to tell those nuclei to transcribe DNA. What the testosterone does is it transcribes DNA into proteins. Great. Increases the utilization of amino acids to turn into proteins. Tells the satellite cells to turn into more nuclei of muscle to increase the transcriptional activity of the muscle to produce more proteins. So it's all about hypertrophy with testosterone. That's its activity when it comes to the the benefits of training. All right. Um, I said earlier that it's more specific for type 1 fibers compared to type 2. Do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2? Tell, tell me. No idea whatsoever. Is this like fast versus slow twitch? Yeah, so f- what type of uh, muscle do you think would be predominant in powerlifters, bodybuilders, things like that? Fast twitch. Yeah, so that's type 2. So glycolytic. Type 1 
likes to use fatty acids, slow okay. twitch, right? For some reason, testosterone seems to, uh, the receptors on type 1 uh, are more potently stimulated by testosterone. However, once you get really high levels of testosterone, like supra-physiological so levels. So you, you inject it. Yeah, that's right. Um, what happens? It starts to favor type 1 and type 2. Oh, really? And so you get uh, hypertrophic effects of both tissues, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so the benefits are through hypertrophy. Okay. The detriments. <laughs> so the, oh, keep going, keep going. All right. So this is if you're doping. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So if you're doping, if someone's doping, I'm not targeting the listeners here. So when you say the detriments, you're referring to just high amounts of testosterone or super physiological. Okay. All right. Yeah. So endogenous testosterone that's produced by somebody without exogenously introducing. Now, taking testosterone orally means it has to go through the liver. Most of it's broken down. So testosterone is usually injected or it's a transdermal patch. Oh, yeah. So it just jumps straight into the bloodstream, bypasses the liver. So it doesn't have to go through hepatic first pass, break it down. Right. Um, but I said that 12, something like 12 nanomoles per liter is the amount of testosterone level. People take like six, I think it's something like, uh, let me just, I think it's 600 milligrams of testosterone in single injections, which is crazy, super physiological. And the, and the, the issue, the potential issue with doing this um, is that testosterone has so many diverse effects in multiple tissues, one of which being the heart. Yep. Testosterone can remodel the heart. Do you know in what way it can remodel the heart? So in terms of the, the cardiomyocytes? Correct. So it puts it into kind of a myopathy, cardiomyopathy type. Is that what you meant? Yeah. So do you know what in what way? Um, personally, no. Maybe uh, – well, I know it's um, even hormonal replacement. It's thought that you have to be – concerned if patients were to have heart failure yeah because of its greater risk i know that um testosterone will increase the production of red blood cells so it pushes you towards a polysynthemia form yeah that's in, that's important so people with polysynthemia probably need to avoid taking uh, testosterone your if you were to take testosterone i think to hyper what did you say hyper Supra, supra physiological you have a, a fourfold increase risk of stroke that yep. that will probably come through its action on thicker blood but also clot risks yep um they actually found in america that uh, of athletes high school college athletes 40 percent of them took anabolic steroids so that so over three million uh, anabolic androgen steroid users are in the united states All right um it was actually experimented at one stage to be a contraceptive drug because what happens when you have it at high amounts, it actually turns off your Leydig cells and we need the Leydig cells to produce testosterone locally in, in a testicle level to jump over into the Sertoli cells, which is the androgen bind protein to help spermatogenesis. Yeah, so this is an... Imp- I think this... We uh, should focus on this point, especially for people who use it. They should be aware that when you take exogenous testosterone, your body likes to maintain homeostasis, balance of everything. That includes your hormones, especially hormones. Yeah, especially. So your body's going to produce endogenously within a certain amount of testosterone and it maintains a range, a happy, healthy range. 
and there's feedback. So when you when your endogenous testosterone goes up, it goes back to the pituitary gland and tells the luteinizing hormone stop releasing, and then the testosterone levels drop down a little bit, and then that inhibitory effect diminishes and you more LH is released, the more testosterone is released and it continues to have this negative feedback mechanism. If you start taking exogenous testosterone, that testosterone is floating through the bloodstream, goes straight to the brain and says, there's heaps of testosterone here, don't release any luteinizing hormone. So that means no endogenous testosterone is produced and you're only relying on this exogenous testosterone. But like yeah. Matt said, the local effects at the testes of this exogenous testosterone aren't going to be as efficient and as think, the endogenous. I, and I think the reason why that is, the Sertoli cells actually produce, they're the supportive cells for the sperm cells, they produce a blood testes barrier, which means um, the testosterone in your blood can't get in there anyway. So it's probably only coming from the Leydig cells that just jump as, an, as a neighbour into those binding proteins to yeah. tell your um, sperm to be turned on. So these people who take high amounts of exogenous testosterone that will actually become sterile yeah that's right mm. that's right um what about uh, is anything i want to talk about testosterone supplements but is there anything else that you want to talk oh, about? the other the other risk would be and i think you'll probably add to this but um because uh in the prostate testosterone ah, yeah. um will be converted to dht which is dihydrotestosterone which is a much more potent form now, the thought there, or my understanding of this is, it kind of maintains and increases the prostatic cells to keep producing what they need to do in the prostate gland. Now, even as your testosterone levels drop off as you age, for some people, the DH actually increases. And so this can put a person into a higher risk of developing benign prostatic hyperplasia. Now, that's just a benign growth. So that's not necessarily going to cause any besides not being able to urinate efficiently, it's not going to cause a cancerous problem. But then for some people, they can develop a, a dysplastic form of prostatic cell, which means you know a cancer-like yeah, form. Yeah, that's right. And higher amounts of testosterone, at least in some form, can make this cancer worse. And so what happens is for some treatments, they could actually castrate the, the male so just turn off the testosterone completely. Or they might get give blockers, one being the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, because yep. that's the one that turns testosterone to DHT. They can give that to stop the testosterone or DH effect on those uh, cancer cells. But interestingly then, patients who have gone on this, either being castrated at that later time in their life or gone on these hormonal detrimental Detra, what, what, what's the word? Um, removal. Um, I can't think of the word. Um, therapy. Yeah. Then they have other changes in their body. So not only um, they're more likely to put on fat, like we spoke about, but they also have changes in their cognition and so forth. Oh, okay. From testosterone. From not a lack of. A lack of lack testosterone. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. And so, did you want me to just mention one last thing? And this sure is kind of. Can I just quickly say, just to finish off the prostate point, is that um, people who, so one of the things that a GP or, or physician will look at when uh, talking about testosterone replacement therapy is obviously not everyone is suitable. So people who have a history of prostate cancer or 
prostatic hyperplasia probably aren't suitable. People who have heart issues probably aren't suitable, so cardiovascular issues or risk of cardiovascular disease. People who already have blood issues, so polycythemia already. Uh, people who have liver issues, because obviously the testosterone will be metabolized by the liver. And so, you know, there's an extra burden there anytime the liver needs to metabolize something uh, added, right? So there's, there are a number of scenarios in which people just should not be taking testosterone replacement or testosterone supplementation. But again, that conversation needs to be had with their physician. Yes, indeed. That's, and, but one other thing I, I just did read on that is another aspect that makes it very difficult is you may have, quote unquote, a normal level of testosterone, but you may have the clinical effects or the, the side effects of not having enough. And the thought behind that Hypogonadism. is... Hypogonadism. Yeah, the thought is that your receptors, your androgen receptors become desensitized. So yeah. this is, unless you did some kind of genetic screen, you would not know that. So, so it's even, like testosterone insensitivity, like, yeah, like, that's right. like, like insulin yeah. sensitivity. Yeah. So that makes it even harder, which means we probably have to be pushing to go down more personalized medicine where we're doing things yeah. for the individual on an individual basis rather than try to broadly screen... Which is what medicine should be. So for a final point that I just want to make is the effect of testosterone on the brain. And so this is just some studies that were done which I found were of interest. First of all, a study that looked at um, when they placed pictures, particularly of people on the screen, and they um, tracked the eyes of the individual uh, and then looked at where the focus was placed. For men, particularly men with higher levels of testosterone, they're more focused on if it was the uh, opposite sex, breast, hip, waist ratio, and then finally the face, whereas for females they fo- focused more on faces and expression and seemed to be a greater um, link to empathy. Now the thought, did you want to make a comment there? Yes, and they, they're saying this is related to testosterone. Well, they, I didn't go into... It's what, not just what, what I don't know, it's, it's like a... a, well, a Interestingly, when they then looked at um, the effects of the deprivation therapies, that um, for some men that they they kind of switch back to more focus on facial expressions and empathy opposed to the, the opposite. So they is do they insinuate that the testosterone promotes a sex drive um, when it comes to yes. visual cues? Potentially, yes. Okay. The, the thought. And you could look at this in the animal kingdom is testosterone seems to not only have the effect of masculinizing the phenotypic body, but also driving spermatogenesis, but also in terms of behavior, a dominance, a domineering effect. Okay. Okay. So if you look in the animal kingdom, um, animals, males who have higher, well, I shouldn't say higher, but the testosterone is thought to um, drive a, a hierarchical dominance, and that's usually expressed through violence. But when we come to okay. humans, because we've evolved to be social beings, um, it's not always, and this is why it's difficult to make these assumptions, that some males have the ability to be able to utilise that dominance in different ways so they can do it through collaboration, through partnerships, not just wanting to have a punch-up. So then a larger study wanted to look, and this is the meta-analysis that you can possibly talk about as well, where they wanted to, to see if um, violent crime and those kind of things were linked to testosterone levels and they found that there wasn't a, 
They didn't appear when they normalized it. Was it was individual. Right? It was dependent on the individual as opposed to any large group effects. So you can't necessarily say that everybody who has high testosterone is going to be aggressive. More, like more violent, more aggressive. More yeah. violent, more aggressive. Um, I'll make my statement, then you can make yours. Yep. Uh, because when you normalize for other factors like socioeconomic factors, uh, underlying psychological factors, you know, environmental factors, all those types of things, that the effect of testosterone sort of starts to disappear yeah. um, and that it seems to be just the individual. So when you say that somebody who takes testosterone becomes more aggressive, that's, that's the individual. That's not, that's not necessarily the effect of testosterone, yeah. right? And then I think they went on a bit further from that study and they actually then found there, were, there seems to be some links now that um, testosterone um, seems to run parallel with cortisol. So if you would have high amounts of testosterone with similar high amounts of cortisol, you wouldn't seem to present with any more aggressive or violent-like behaviour. But if they were to go opposite, so lower cortisol to high testosterone, then there seems to start to be a link to that. Okay. And at least in some... Uh, research labs in Australia, they're looking at that link on cortisol testosterone levels and then they're trying to do uh, fMRI studies where they're looking at functional parts of your brain that seems to be associated with aggression and management of aggression and when they are um, aggravated by the uh, researcher in the MRI scan um, through a number of ways, they found yeah. that there are certain parts of the, the brain light up that may suggest that they're less efficient to manage aggression or aggressive-like okay. behaviour. Yeah, I'm taking all the associations of testosterone and aggression with a grain of salt. Um, well, that would just give you hypertension. And <laughs> <laughs> boost your aldosterone. Um, all right, can I talk about supplements? Yep, really quickly because we're always... Well, I think a lot of listeners would like to know mostly about true, the supplements true. more so than embryology, for example. Go for it, go for it. Okay, so a study looked at, uh, went on Amazon, for example, and looked at the most uh, abundant or most, uh, the best sellers for testosterone boosting supplements, right? Now, they, what they did was they took all the ingredients that were stated on these testosterone boosting supplements and they had a look at the studies behind them to see whether they are successful. First thing that they found was that 20% of the studies performed on the ingredients were done in humans. So, oh, so 80% were animals, animals or cells. cells, right? And even then the evidence was crap. So things like tribulus, for example, which is like a, a, a plant extract, uh, it, it, it doesn't boost your testosterone. The evidence out there is really crappy. It's, the evidence in humans is very, very poor. So it's a waste of money in all honesty. Um, and again, an important point, if uh, testosterone doesn't necessarily cause prostate cancer, but there is a relationship between free testosterone, so unbound testosterone to albumin and, and that, um, that sex binding. Yep. That does increase your risk of prostate cancer. I think every increase of 50 picomoles per liter of free testosterone increases your risk by 10%. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend buying those boosters online. Um, waste of money. That's the first thing, if that's what somebody's after. So when people ask me, is there a natural way to boost testosterone? My first you know, question in response would be, why do you want to boost testosterone? Um, testosterone itself 
isn't going to make you a big, strong, muscly person. Uh, maybe exercise first, <laughs> eat well, sleep well, do all those so things. So the only real indication of why you'd want to boost testosterone or take it exogenously if you were low, yes, definitively. If you had Not the clinical diagnosis thought, oh, of hypogonadism. Yeah. If, if you're somebody who's just training and exercising and you're healthy and you go natal, so everything's good there, I don't understand why you'd want to just take testosterone. Um, if you're going to boost a hormone level outside of its normal physiological uh, range, expect side effects. Yeah, I mean that's just that's just the it's the truth. Expect side effects, um, and these excited these side effects may be noticeable uh, physiologically, or they may be subtle and they may be cumulative. So be careful. Always go talk to your physician before you go play around with your biochemistry. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, waste of money. Um, second thing, and I'll just finish with this, right? Slash expensive urine. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, burdening the liver. Anytime you have to put something in your liver that's multiple compounds and ingredients, your liver has to deal with it. Even things like um, you talk to a, a hepatologist, not herpetologist because they do snakes, hepatologist. Is that right? Hepatologist? No, no. Who deals with the who's liver specialists? Oh, I thought you meant the snakes one. No, that's a herpetologist. Herpy, herpy, yeah, herpy is sta- snake. Oh wow. Yeah, I don't know where the, the 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 herpes virus comes from. I don't know if there's an etymology there with snakes. Is herpes a god? No, Hermes is. Hermes. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> keep keep going. Herpes the god. Uh, anyway, hepatologist. <laughs> Uh, hepatologist, I, I still don't know whether I'm using the right term here. Uh, I heard a hepatologist say that um, they don't even like their patients taking herbal teas because of the extra burden it puts on the liver to metabolize the um, the plant products. Does that mean just full stop or just patients that already have compromised Yeah, liver? that's a good point. I can't remember, but they just don't like it. They don't like anything that, that puts another burden on the liver. Yeah, wow. Um, okay, two interesting points and we'll finish with this. One study, I don't know why, well, I do know why, but it's not uh, relevant to this discussion. It's just an interesting study. They tried to get diabetic rats to ejaculate. and When you say ejaculate, do you mean just I don't know. I don't know how you could... Or just uh, <laughs> to, to copulate with the female? I, I, didn't, I didn't read that far into the study because I wasn't getting... Uh, I just... The, the heading, the title was interesting. It caught my eye, so to speak. And so I just read the abstract and it said, uh, trying to get diabetic rats to ejaculate. And to do so... That's a good title, isn't it? They get, well, that wasn't the title. I can't remember what the title was. But it was something like um, using testosterone to promote ejaculation in rats. Something like diabetic that. Diabetic rats. Yeah. So they tried testosterone and they tried what they called a cocktail, right? In quotations. And I was thinking, well, what is this cocktail? So I went into the methods section. And the cocktail was cocaine with propanolol. So cocaine with a beta blocker. I don't know why. They didn't justify why. But they checked to see if cocaine with a beta blocker could promote ejaculation and testosterone could promote ejaculation in these diabetic rats. It didn't do anything. It was The study was no effect for either cocktail or testosterone. But that's besides the point. It was an interesting study. The second one was they found that mice, this was just like a side thing that they noticed. They found that mice routinely consuming purified lactic acid bacteria, like Lactobacillus ruteri, which originally isolated from human milk, right, had larger testicles and an increase in serum testosterone. Now, this is probably due to the lactate 
production from this bacteria, stimulating testosterone, increasing the size of the mice testes and increasing the serum testosterone. I just thought that was super interesting. Did they take um, the levels of the testosterone from that animal? Yeah, yeah. The serum testosterone was high. Right. So they had big testicles as well as high testosterone. That's right. And it seems to be from the microflora that they're ingesting. So from the probiotic that they're ingesting. Now, don't interpret this as though you need to go out, find lactate-producing bacteria, and it's going to boost. I know there's going to be people listening to this going, I'm going to go out and find some probiotics, and that's going to boost my... It's not going to happen. Stop doing it. Stop wasting your time. Probiotics are only beneficial for people with certain disorders like irritable bowel syndrome, certain types of colitis, certain types of inflammatory bowel diseases, and so forth. So don't waste your time. Uh, I'm done. Or if you have a a diabetic rat that can't ejaculate. (laughs) Look, that's a good place to finish. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Mike. See you, everyone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.